Some months back, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, made these comments to the General Assembly. Now, citing crisis after crisis, such as wars and conflicts in Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Libya, Sudan, Myanmar, not to mention Russia and the Ukraine, world economic instability, corruption, and access to food and fuel, and, of course, the great focus of the effects of climate change gripping all corners of the world, the Secretary Gutierrez ended his comments by stating these words. We are gridlocked in colossal global dysfunction. The international community is not ready or willing to tackle the big dramatic challenges of our age. These crises threaten the very future of humanity and the fate of our planet. Our world is in peril. You know, there are a lot of voices out there Many people believe that humanity is at a crossroads. But, you know, amidst these troubling views that sometimes get voiced, we in the church can be affected by this turbulence in our society. We ourselves also face the prospect of confusion and fear and even being confounded sometimes by what we see going on in this world. You know, the fact is, brethren, there are many here today and I would submit probably most everybody does, but there are many here today who have a view of life and a view of this world. You have a view in your mind's eye. You have a view of what's going on. You have a view of what's actually wrong. You have a view of why it's happening. And you have a view of what needs to change. Now, some of that view comes from various sources, sometimes through viewing the, through the lens of, of media, Um, news sources, opinions, and politicians. Some of our view of the world that we live in, and even the nation that we live in, is as a result of listening or reading from different political or or academic pundits, such as Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, or the Dennis Pragers of the world. Or historians such as Douglas Murray, Niall Ferguson, Victor David Hansen, or Thomas Sowell, or even from our seats in church today. We all have views of the world we live in, and they are affected by so many things. But, you know, amidst the turmoil of the world that surrounds us, that view that we have has been constructed in our minds over time. However, there's another view of mankind in the world that we should consider. Not our view, and I'm not suggesting that our personal view is is necessarily wrong or inaccurate, but there's another view of mankind in the world that we live in that we should consider, and I'm talking about God's view, God's view of the world, of its people, and of its condition and its fate. You know, while we embrace our perception of the world, this question of God's view and perception about all this should be of vital importance to each and every one of us. Today, what I want to do, brethren, is I I want to take a simple, but I hope is an important look at how God views the world we live in and why it's vitally important as we face the future for us to strive to see the world, not through our own eyes, but through the lens and the eyes of God. You know, as we ponder in our view and take on the world that we live in, and we all have one, one way or another, I want to begin by considering a few biblical facts that all of us know. But if we want to consider God's perspective, I think it's important to review these few fundamental biblical facts about our world. If you turn to Genesis 6, Genesis chapter 6, and as we turn there, you're probably already figuring out what we're going to, what I'm going to make reference to if you know the book of Genesis well, and many of you do. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5. And we read these very sobering words from uh, the earliest pages of the book of Genesis. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. These few verses are incredibly powerful when you really think about it. 
There have been times when people have read these few verses and wondered, is this the same God that's overseeing planet Earth today? Now, I think all of us recognize the intent of what God describes here as we read it in the book of Genesis. But the phrase in verse 5 is what's really compelling and what I want to focus on for a moment. Is God acknowledging that the level of wickedness as he saw it on the earth was great and that the intent of the thoughts and heart was only evil continually? There was something about the way things were unfolding on planet earth at the time that was untenable in the eyes of God. Now the point is we know that this chaos in darkness that is described here in Genesis 6 that we sometimes reflect upon in the 21st century, it's happened before. Mankind's been there before. Now I'd like you to turn to Matthew 24, if you would. Matthew chapter 24. Here we're fast forward to Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And he makes reference to this exact uh, example that we read of in, in Genesis chapter 6. Matthew 24. Now this is after Christ had explained many of the uh, events that would unfold prior to his return because of that initial question that was asked at the beginning of Matthew 24. But we find in verse 37, he says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they were living life as they saw fit to live. Life was carrying on for the majority of people until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So the point is, is that we also know that God predicted this was going to happen again or something similar to it. It was going to happen again. And then finally, in Luke's account of this similar, uh, same occasion, Luke 21, we find a personal uh, admonition that Jesus gave to his disciples about that future event, that future time period that he made reference to that we know as the Great Tribulation and those events leading up to the Day of the Lord, which we know is what he addressed in Matthew chapter 24. But in that respect, he makes these personal comments here at Luke 21 to the church, to his disciples. He said, but take heed to yourselves. You know, it's one thing to know that this happened several thousand years ago. It's another thing to know that similar events are going to take place and it's going to happen in a way that shocks most of mankind in the future. But he says here in Luke 21, verse 34, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life that the day come upon you unexpectedly. Who so is giving the church an admonition to be aware of what's happening and be aware of what's going on. For it will come as a snare on all those that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things which will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And the point here is that we've known it's coming and Christ warned or admonished the church to be aware. So despite, you know, the sobering reality of what we often will hear about, read about, of the world we live in, of our country, its peoples, and what the planet's going through and how people are concerned about it, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. But, you know, talking about God's view of the world, where, where do you really start? I mean, it's a big topic when you think about it. Uh, much of what we read in the Scripture uh, would define that in some respects. But I want to start with today. What I mean by today, I want to talk about the times we're living in. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1 and get a little bit of insight, although it's a very sobering insight, into God's view of modern Israel. Now, we know that uh, the book of Isaiah speaks to the nation of Judah, yes, and, and to Israel, uh, being the 12 tribes. And we find a description here in, in Isaiah chapter 1, which is a very sobering one. It's a very graphic metaphor extremely graphic, in fact, describing the culture of his people uh, as he views it, as God sees it, not as man sees it. And I think it's important to note that. Isaiah chapter 1, 
beginning in verse 4, Isaiah 1 and verse 4. So uh, starting off in a very positive note, it says, alas, O sinful nation. <laughs> you know, clearly God, through his prophets, spoke the truth, and it was an unfettered truth. And sometimes painful to both speak, as some of the prophets found out, but more importantly, difficult to swallow by his people. But we recognize that this is a description, yet there's a duality to it, but it's a description of modern Israel. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backward, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. You're speaking about a people that won't learn from its own mistakes. And notice this, the whole head is sick. And the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds, notice how he describes this human body, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Now, there's much that could be said about the detail of what's in these few verses. But one thing we do know, brethren, this is an extremely graphic and really a disgusting picture of a human body that is to represent a nation. But as I said moments ago, if we don't view the world through God's eyes, and I'm not trying to suggest that Isaiah chapter 1 is the only view that we should have, but if we don't view the world through the way that God sees the world we live in, we run the risk of being confused, we run the risk of being misguided and distracted from the perspective of God. Now, for the sake of our discussion, I'd like to define God's worldview. I think most of us know what a worldview is. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that's pretty well known. But for the sake of, of the message today, what's God's worldview? Let's just describe it this way. God's truths which shape how he sees mankind and the world and its destiny. God's truths which shape how God sees mankind and the world and its destiny. You know, it's true that there are many people who have studied history in the church, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know a few of you have and have been history majors. And when you study history, world history that is, you realize that uh, this world's past is a very uh, eclectic and colored history of mankind. Uh, and many of you who have taken world history classes, not just Western civilization, which many of us took, we're talking world history, you know the diverse and intricate chronicles of so many different civilizations and empires over the millennia. It's fascinating to see what mankind has done, where he's taken his, uh, his striving for empire. But, you know, as a history book, the Bible, that which we have in our laps, is unique as a history book. While God's written word recognizes the deep and complex and colored histories of many empires, and it does, it has a unique focus as a history book, and that's through the lens of God's plan for all of mankind. So we see history as we read through the, the Scripture through the lens of what God has in store for mankind, why mankind was put on this earth. And it's important for us to remember that, especially at times like this. I want to consider seven different truths that are, I think are foundation to how God views the world. Now, one could say there's more than seven, and I would submit there probably are. But these are pretty fundamental, and I think you'll, you'll agree to that. And, and these are things that we know and understand about the world we live in. But the reason we know and understand them is because God has revealed those to us. And in many cases, these truths that I'll briefly mention are predicated upon the actions of God, the decisions of God, and the view of God. First of all, God views the world through the lens of man's rejection of him from the beginning. We know the story as it's played out in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we know it well, the, uh, the uh, 
account of the two trees, but we, we know and understand that Adam and Eve, despite the opportunity they had, they chose to take to themselves an understanding of right and wrong. And of course, God kept through a cherubim the, their access to the tree of life, and that really set the course of mankind. We know and understand that it's a fundamental truth that makes up the premise upon which God views this world. Number two, God views the world that he chose to destroy due to immense evil. We just made reference to that in Genesis chapter 6. God views the world today based upon the fact that the world several thousand years ago was one that he wanted to, up to a point, but not totally, bring to an end in terms of life. And that was because of immense evil that mankind brought upon himself. We read about that again in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Number three, God then even chose to restrict man's progress and confounded the languages. We find that laid out in Genesis chapter 11. Now, how many of us in the church have thought about the world today in light of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis? Maybe some have. I, until looking at it more recently, I had to admit that while I know the story that we read of in Genesis chapter 3 and certainly know of the, uh, of the flood and, and what brought that about, and then you read a few chapters later, it was much time later, God wanted to slow down the progress of mankind and did so by confounding the languages. A, f- a fascinating decision that God made because in part mankind wanted to reach heaven, built the Tower of Babel. There's a lot that goes into that story. But you think about the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis and how that is a foundation upon which civilization has been built from God's perspective. God intervened by creating man and woman. He, he intervened by barring them from the tree of life. He intervened by the flood and certainly by the confounding of languages. And he did that because of the civilizational and global impact of those decisions. Number four, God views the world, at least as we understand it through uh, uh, the years since creation, through 6,000 years of written history, through the lens of his plan. God views the world through 6,000 years of written history, through the lens of his plan that we know and have been given. Number five, God views this world as bipolar, meaning, number one, the vast majority are cut off from him and don't understand, and there's various versions of confusion and a lack of understanding. And number two, a very small percentage of people that he's chosen to reach out and to call. That's what I mean by bipolar. There are many other ways that you could describe it, but we know that God talks about this present evil world, and We'll make reference to a few other scriptures here in a few moments. Number five, or excuse me, number six, God sees Satan as the ruler of this world, having deceived all of mankind through time. There are places we could turn to in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation chapter 12, and elsewhere, but that's how God views this world. The greatest, the being that has had the greatest amount of continual impact in terms of influence by design by his choice, and I'm talking about this being his choice, is Satan and his demons. It's not to say that God hasn't had an impact. God has chosen to have an impact, of course. But there's much that we, the insight we, we gained about some of that when we read the first few, uh, first chapter or so of the book of Job and the, and the dialogue that took place between God and, and, and Satan. And then number seven. But... Or a however in this one. God has revealed that the, and he looks at the world this way, that the only solution to the difficulties that mankind is facing, which would have been true, I presume, at the time of the flood. It would have been true at the time of his choice to confound the languages at the Tower of Babel. And that is the changing of human nature. It's the only solution to man's troubles. And it's a spiritual solution. You know, whether you're talking about things such as border issues, economy, corruption, morality, all of which are problems, and we could list many more. 
the only solution to those in our world is the changing of human nature. God views the world through this premise. Now, there's more obvious to God's view of the world than, than that. These are fundamental truths that we all know and understand. But you know, brethren, to some people, what I just went through, this list could seem to be a very simplified view of the world, of history, and of the crises that plague the world today in 2023. Some people say, well, that's, that's just overly simplified. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. These foundational contexts of understanding, and that's what maybe I choose to call them, foundational contexts of understanding the world are spiritual in nature, and to the unconverted mind are simply not understood, to the unconverted mind are simply not even considered or not even on their radar. You know, ultimately, man's global troubles are all spiritual in nature, the real cause. And as we know, and the church has taught for a long time, the solution or the solutions are spiritual. You know, when you remove these, and I'll call it context of understanding of, of man and of history, when you remove that, some of those things I just mentioned, from understanding the state of the world, when you think about it, anybody who would remove all of that by, in terms of looking at their world, they're flying blind, aren't they? They are flying blind when it comes to understanding the world. Now, I looked up the phrase flying blind, where that actually came from. Come to find out that pilots in World War II, and this is back when uh, certain instrumentation was brand new uh, in, 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 in many uh, aircraft, uh, they, when they couldn't see the horizon, that was a difficulty. And they had to rely upon instruments, which were pretty rudimentary at the time. And, of course, the instruments went out, then you were truly flying blind. We live in a world that, without the context of understanding what we're talking about today, are flying blind. Flying blind. And yet we all know that there are many people in this world that sincerely want to understand the world we live in and what can make it better. These elements, to God's perspective, represent the only voice of truth and reason in a world of confusion. They really are the only voices and the only understanding factually of truth and reason. And these fundamentals of God's worldview really offer an analysis and perspective of the current state of the world that is profoundly different than what you'll get in any other source. You just won't find it elsewhere. You know, God sees the world profoundly different from some of the sources I'm going to mention here in a moment. And by the way, I'll mention some sources of information, of news, uh, of, uh, of, of even world events. And, and some of these sources are good sources to tap. Um, I'm not suggesting that they're not only to point out that there are a lot of opinions out there. And while it, be, it is important that we consider uh, some of those as we look uh, to, uh, to what was unfolding in this world, it's important that we don't necessarily draw the conclusions that some of these individuals, because of their limited understanding, will come to. I mean, sources such as Fox News, CNN, BBC, the Heritage Foundation, Hillsdale College, the Spectator magazine, Jordan Peterson and his YouTube, Ben Shapiro, Niall Ferguson, Victor David Hansen, Glenn Beck, Joe Rogan. And I could go on and on. And some of these sources, many of us in this room may listen to or read. And that's fine. And depending on how and why we do it, it's probably good. But I'm just talking about the difference between what these individuals see and what God sees. And how, without that context of understanding, they in many ways are flying blind. It's not about people who are ignorant and, or ignorant in terms of intellectually, uh, you know, unintelligent. There's a lot of intelligent people who sincerely want to understand the world we live in. And some of whom are actually looking for solutions. You know, I, I, 
I uh, <clears throat> quoted the UN Secretary General, and of course there are a lot of people, in- including yours truly, that sometimes think the United Nations and its effectiveness are a joke. So I'm not denying that fact, except that there are people who are looking for answers and looking for an understanding that they are flying blind at because they don't have an understanding of the view that God has and that we have, or at least have access to, brethren. But why should God's view of the world be important to you and to me? Why? Why should the lens through which God views mankind be the lens through which we view the conditions in the world today? Well, what I want to do in the next 20 or minutes or so is to share four reasons why I think it's important for us to consider God's view of the world. First of all, we can, as God's people, any of us, be distracted and deceived away from the reality of the world we live in. We can be distracted away from the reality of the world we live in. I'm not referring to man's reality of what he sees, or even what we left to ourselves think we see, necessarily, but God's reality of how he sees the world. We can be deceived and distracted away from that. It's important to remember that Satan desires and strives for the general public, and he's been uh, successful at that, I think we could agree, and us in the church, he strives for the general public and us to have a view that makes just enough sense to be taken in by it on certain levels about the world we live in and unfortunately not be accurate. You know, how many of us in this room have found ourselves um, being interested in, in a point of view on, on some aspect of world events that is new and, uh, and fascinating. Of course, we, when we talk about conspiracy theories, uh, I'm not going to talk about but one here for the next few, few moments. And it was the one that I was taken in by over 50 years ago. When I was a student at Ambassador College, I came home one summer just for a couple of weeks and one gentleman who was in our local church, he was considerably older than I was, but was a good friend of the family. He actually worked for the state of Michigan and worked for what was the State Bureau of Investigation. So he, he's quite an educated guy, but he, he, can, he was showing me a couple of books that he read. Now, do you remember, this is 1971, so this goes back quite a few years, 52 years ago to be exact. And, uh, and I'm, you know, the ripe, old, wise age of 19 at the time. And uh, after one year at Ambassador College, and he, he proceeds to show me a couple of books that talked about the uniqueness of the United States, which, okay, fair enough, you know, we understand the, the, uh, the origins of, of the uh, house of, uh, well, of Ephraim and Manasseh and, and how uh, that uh, defines uh, the founding of the British Empire in the United States. And, but he also was showing me some, uh, some things about the U.S. dollar bill <laughs> and, and what's on the dollar bill. You know, the, uh, uh, the all-seeing eye of providence above the, the pyramid in the back. And, uh, and other elements to it. And he started talking to me about some, uh, some rich families called the Rothschilds and the Bilderbergers. Now, some of you are already beginning to know exactly what road I'm going down. But mind you, this was all pretty new. Uh, not that the Illuminati, which, by the way, is where this is going, was new. Uh, that actually goes back for about 350 years. But... But the, the, the nouveau version of it, which kind of came back on the, uh, splashed on the screen back about 50 years ago. Um, well, to this mind, I thought, wow, this is pretty fascinating stuff. Um, he was an educated guy, and, and uh, he, he gave me one of the books. He didn't want to read this, you know, because he thought it fit into prophecy, and yet there were some elements to it that didn't quite do that. Well, I like to read. I read the book. I went back to Ambassador College, and I decided, you know what, the, this is just so fascinating, I need to talk to somebody about it. And I went to a, one of the faculty members at, at Ambassador College, who was a minister as well, and somebody, again, that I trusted and, and had been in his class and asked him about this. And he just listened and uh, um, he took a look at the book. And, and I'll, I'll cut to the chase. He, he gave me some advice, and it was advice that I've never forgotten. He said, you know, the lens through which you view facts and events in the world should be that of the Word of God, the prophetic framework God revealed to his people. He said, you've got to view everything through that framework. 
And he went on to show me out of uh, Peter's comments in Second Peter and other places that God didn't sh- say that he would reveal every last detail of everything that's going to happen to his people well before it happened. But we would know what the rest of the world does, and, and we would know what we need to. Now, he wasn't dismissing some of the elements of this, this, this theory, you know. Uh, but it caused me to, uh, to pause, and, and I've never, never forgotten that. But it's so easy sometimes, if something is new to you, to get taken in by it on any number of levels. You know, some arguments, the point is some arguments are viewed stripped of the context of the Word of God can be awfully convincing. Can be awfully convincing. 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. Here we find Paul writing to Timothy, uh, admonishing as he was wont to do with, with Timothy and encouraging him. And he said, look, uh, towards the end of the, this letter, he said, the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now, he was clearly talking to Timothy about what would happen at least to some degree during his ministry. They will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, and this is what I want to focus on, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, it's the Greek term muthos, which where the word myth comes from. Cunningly devised fables. And on, on what level? Well, he didn't elaborate. He just said people are going to find it all too easy to, to be diverted and be distracted away from sound doctrine. And, and because, you know, this issue of itching ears, I think, is a pretty fascinating description. That we just want to hear something that sounds so plausible and so unique. Um, and, and sometimes people can't get their fill of that. And he was encouraging and admonishing Timothy to be aware and help the brethren beware of that. Beware. We know in Matthew 24, uh, Christ made this statement to his disciples that, you know, if, if anyone says, here's Christ or there, don't believe him. There are going to be theories and, and, and opportunities and even false prophets that as he, he said there that to deceive, if it were possible, the very elect. Well, if any of us presume that we, can't, we are incapable of being deceived, we're deceived on that one. We are all capable of being deceived about any number of things. And hopefully our, our desire to serve God and to embrace his truth and his law and his way of life and to understand ourselves will mitigate that happening. But it can happen. You know, the principle of deception on so many levels. Another reason, reason number two, God's view is the only one that really defines the real cause of the chaos and the confusion and the violence and the perversion and the upside-down perspective of so many in the 21st century. God's view is the only one that defines the real cause. The real cause. Many years ago, in the church, there was a, 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 some phrase that was used in, in many a message, and I remember it well. Some of you probably would as well, because we, and I think maybe Mr. Armstrong himself may have made reference to this on some occasions about the issue of cause and effect, and that we know that, uh, you know, we, we as human beings tend to sometimes treat the, treat the effect and not really get to the understanding of what the cause of a problem is. And there's truth to that. You know, mankind is pretty good at, at focusing on the effect of problems as opposed to understanding what the underlying cause is. And that's even true today. I mean, there, there are uh, many uh, a voice out there that, from what I know, are not converted. They're not a part of the church of God, but they recognize that some of the causes of, of, uh, of the social problems we have in our country and in the world go back to issues relating to family and marriage. That fundamental. You know, and, and there's truth to that. Now, now, you know, you can't necessarily legislate, though, people into a, a good marriage based on right godly principles. It, it doesn't work. So there are people who understand that the real cause of problems is something that's probably not, not the mankind doesn't have the ability to reach and really affect and, of course, even that understanding is limited. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, 
you know, again, I'm, I'm commenting on this, this, this second reason for us to be seeking the view of God as how he views this world is that God's view is the only one that really helps one understand the real cause of man's problems on all levels. But in Matthew chapter 4, we find the dialogue that took place between Satan and Christ after Christ had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And we, we know this uh, account and dialogue pretty well. But I want to review a, a statement that's made here for the sake of this point. Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, in this dialogue that was taking place, and Satan is doing his best to, to get Jesus Christ to, to really bow down and, and worship him and, and before his feet. The devil took him, that is Christ, up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And we were talking earlier about the history of mankind over these past 6,000 years. But here you find in the first century... Satan showing all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, at the time anyway. And he said to him, that is, Satan said to Jesus, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, there's nothing in the scripture that indicates that he didn't have that to give. Satan is offering to give something to Jesus at the time. I'm going to give you this. Jesus didn't say, you don't have it to give. Now, we know that any influence that Satan has over the governments of mankind is limited by what God allows, but we know by what we read in the Scripture, it's quite pervasive up to a point. You don't find Christ arguing against that aspect of this offer that was made to him. The kingdoms of the world and their glory... From what we read here, brethren, were Satan's to give. He was offering something that he evidently had the capability to some degree to offer. That's how powerful he is. Now, as I said earlier, these things can sometimes be, seem to be a bit of an oversimplification. Well, Scripture doesn't really mean that. He just kind of influences most people. Well, that's not what the Scripture tells us, brethren. Do we really understand and believe this? You know, the, the fingerprints of Satan and the tentacles and the impact and the power of his, of his effect on mankind is far-reaching, more so than we sometimes realize. I know when, when we were in Zambia just a few weeks ago, and every time we've been there over the last several years and, and spent a Saturday night, and I say a Saturday night because there's a couple of very small, broken-down mud buildings within a few hundred yards of where the church property is, and they are churches, You'd look at it, you'd think it's, a, it's a, 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 a remnant of something that was destroyed by, by a hurricane. It's only about, you know, 400 square feet with mud bricks. And that was a Catholic church, and there was another one. And sometimes on a Saturday night or early Sunday morning, you will hear a lot of chanting going on. It doesn't sound like chanting coming from an evangelical church here in Dallas, Texas, or someplace in the U.S., and several years ago, I, in, in talking to some of the, our local brethren about that, well, they, they, they acknowledge that what's happened, despite the hundreds of years of an effort to evangelize many of these countries, that even to this day, most of these Christian churches have a deep syncretized, in other words, blend of their pagan uh, traditional beliefs, which focus on spirit influence and their view of Christianity. Uh, and it's, and it, it's pervasive, and particularly in the rural areas. Now, 90, 95% of the population of a country like Zambia are rural. And you realize, again, it's a different setting than what we have in, in, in the West, uh, and yet his, and I'm talking about Satan's fingerprints, are all over the world that we live in, in ways that sometimes we don't understand. Revelation chapter 12 Revelation 12. I made reference to this a few moments ago. We know that Revelation 12 and verse 9, there's a statement that is made that I think is, bears repeating. Revelation 12, verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, another way of describing that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, so there's no doubt about who's being referred to here. And notice how he's described, who deceives the whole world 
who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. God's view is the only one that defines the real cause of the 21st century chaos that we find. Third reason, man's view generates confusion, sometimes fear, and ultimately wrong conclusions. You know, God knew that the troubled times that we would live through or those in the church would be experiencing at the time of the end would be troubling and and, uh, disorienting. He knew that. He knew people by the millions would scramble in fear and ignorance coupled with their own opinions. And there are a lot of them out there. I think all of us know, brethren, there are people who are striving sincerely to make sense of the world around them, but without spiritual knowledge. And it's not something that we should make light of. I don't think that we do. But we should acknowledge the fact that there are people out there that really want to seek from their perspective what they think they know um, to understand the reasons why we are where we are and what needs to be done to solve Some of it is politics, some of it not, but to solve the problems they see. I mean, whether we're talking about drugs coming across the border and the fentanyl explosion, there's so many things that we could list. And I certainly don't want to uh, just talk about all of the negative things that are going on in this world, but they're there. And my whole point is that there's a way to view this world. And I believe that man's view of the problems that we have can be so incredibly depressing because they don't have, they, they generate fear, they often generate conflict and anger betwixt one another within society. And guess who is rubbing his hands the whole way? Well, it's Satan, because he knows that it's working. And God does not want of us, any of us to fall prey to that. James chapter 2, James 2. James 2, verse 19, interesting statement that James makes about um, the belief in God. But he makes this point here. He says, verse 19 of James chapter 2, You believe that there is one God. You do well, he wrote to the church. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, why did I bring this up? The spirit world believes in God. They don't look to him as their God. They believe in God and God's power. They understand. And the scripture says they tremble. Now, it could mean that it could actually be uh, translated agitated. And of course, in Revelation 12, I won't turn there, but it also makes reference in the same chapter we read from a few moments ago that they know that they have but a short time left. You may recall that, that reference. Matthew 8. Matthew 8. So we're going from James and then Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. And this, of course, is the occasion when Jesus Christ was actually uh, casting demons uh, out of individuals. And, uh, and notice in verse 29, this statement's made. And suddenly they cried out, they being the demons that were cast out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? And notice the last three words, before the time. Before the time. Now, I bring this up because they understand the time frame that you and I understand. Nothing more than that. Satan and the spirit world know that what we know to be the true God, but they know to be a powerful God. And they are agitated at his power. They are angry and agitated at his plan and all that is in it. We focus on plan, God's plan as well we should. But be informed, Satan knows the plan and he knows that he doesn't have much time left. And while that may manifest itself in anger and agitation on his part, it's also going to continue to motivate him to deceive and to misdirect people. As I said, there are people who are trying to make sense of the world they see from where they sit. And I think some people come remarkably close to understanding some aspects of the world we live in without being converted. Several months ago, when we had the pastoral development program 
for all the uh, uh, pastors, uh, full-time men and their wives uh, here at the office over a period of about six or seven months. Many of you, of course, well aware of that. We had classes similar, but on a smaller version of the ministerial refreshing program. One of the classes that we had asked Mr. Joel Meeker to give was one that he entitled Watching the World. And it was an excellent class that he gave on, uh, on, on, on utilizing media sources and, and, and other resources to keep abreast as much as we can as the ministry of the world that we live in. Really an excellent class. Uh, different news and information sources going from one side of the spectrum to the other and laying it out quite well. And uh, why? Well, because it was felt then and it, we still feel that it's important for those of us in the church and the ministry is responsible for teaching uh, the brethren in the church to be able to have an, a, an educated context within which to navigate and help the brethren navigate the world that we live in. And he even talked about in his class, you know, the different biases that are out there in certain news sources. Again, excellent class, and I think motivating some very good sources uh, that he made reference to, and I made reference to even a little bit ago. Um, but in the end, we had to be sure that what we were looking at was always through the lens of what the scriptures showed us is the case. Very important. Some of you probably know, I think Mr. I know, I shouldn't say think, Mr. Burnett's made reference to it, The Signs of the Times, which is a, a publication that the church puts out every several weeks, about once a month. Mr. Meeker's involved in that as well, of course, but in others. But again, in each edition of that, there are news reports taken from news sources around the world that at least report on events that may have some prophetic significance. And in, in, embedded within uh, each of these publications, when it cites that source uh, and cites that particular story, it will it'll give the exact uh, location of where you can go and check that out, but also the biblical connection. As we realize that there's, you know, uh, there, there may be some significance to this from a prophetic point of view. Um, and, and all of that's very important, brethren. It is extremely important. But like anything else, there's accountability and responsibility we have for, for what we view and what we see and what we read and what we conclude about what's out there. You know, there are some pretty powerful voices. And a voice that I've listened to many times, Ben Shapiro, uh, an individual who's running for president right now is kind of catching the, at least the uh, conservative world by storm, Vivek Ramaswamy. Some of you may wonder, what was he, Vivek Ramaswamy? Is he somebody that just moved here from India? Well, his family did. <laughs> He's a U.S. citizen. What an intelligent guy. And to hear him talk, you know, about how he sees this country and what values we need to return to, we'd probably identify with some of it. But all I'm saying is that there are a lot of voices out there, some very interesting ones, some that have a good historical context. Victor David Hansen, a name some of you are aware of, others may not be. And I could go on and on. But it's important that we recognize that sometimes individuals that do not have the privilege, and I will call it that, brethren, the privilege of understanding what you and I understand, will not come to the, ultimately, to the conclusions about where we really are and what's really needed that you and I would come to, that God clearly comes to. And we just need to be aware of that and appreciate what we know. 2 Corinthians 4 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This, of course, is where uh, the Apostle Paul was referring to the world that the Corinthians were called out of. Now, there's a, there's a whole history behind uh, and a very colorful story behind the Corinthian church and uh, that uh, Mr. Johnson could tell better than I can. But the point is that, you know, the very uh, eclectic and diverse group of people being called out of a city that had an incredible history. Uh, and culturally was, was at a place in the first century that wasn't all that great in some respects. But you know what? We find here, though, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, he makes an interesting statement here. He says, but if our gospel is veiled, if what we understand in the truth about Jesus Christ and him being the Messiah and all that that brings in terms of understanding the plan of God, if that's hidden or veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, in the old King James translation, it has lost. And of course, some people draw conclusions that, you know, well, that must be the world, 
you know, there's a certain number of the world that are just lost. They're gone. But, you know, I've tried to make the point that being lost is not the end of the world, even in, from a biblical perspective. Um, you know, how many of us in this room have at some point in time in their life when they were taking a hike with their brother and sister or when they were the Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, traveling to the feast or, or trying to get around, uh, uh, you know, an alien city overseas when you were on vacation, how many of you have ever been lost? Only four of you? Now, come on, I, I know everybody in this room has been lost at least once or twice. Maybe some of you a whole lot more than that. But, you know, the beautiful thing is when somebody asks you a question like that and you're here, guess what? You were found. <laughs> you eventually found a way. Somebody did. In other words, you weren't lost perpetually. Now, when we look at what Paul's saying here about the church or about the world, it's hidden to those who are currently lost. They don't know it. And he's talking about the world that we live in. They haven't found the way yet. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. He's blinded them. And that's not just up to a certain intellectual level. He's blinded them all. Who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. That's a fact. And the fourth reason, and I think that's the most positive one, and one that we should really embrace, and that is God's view and his plan reflects a real future for mankind. The real future and the real hope which hangs on a miraculous solution to all of this. And that, as I said earlier, the fundamental change in the nature of man. A fundamental change in the nature of man. That is a reason for us to strive to have the view of God. As we look at the world that we live in, we should never forget this truth because it will happen. And it's very fundamental to the holy days that we keep, and in particular the fall holy days, which are upcoming. You know, according to the prophecies in our Bible, brethren, Jesus Christ will return to this earth, and a new day will dawn with Christ in control, and Satan will be cast into the abyss, not allowed to deceive the nations for a thousand years, we read about in Revelation chapter 20. And when that day arrives, God promises to make his divine nature eventually available to all of mankind. And many people will respond with a desire to change. And that miracle, their carnal nature, will change through their personal repentance and choices that they make. You know, what a wonderful period of time that's going to be. Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11. Yes, we read here in Ezekiel's account the outcome of, of, of this. But notice how God describes this in Ezekiel chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. We have an incredibly positive and hopeful future ahead of us, and mankind has ahead of itself, but it does not know it. You know, our view of the world we live in can change. And I'm not suggesting that most of us in this room have a desperate need to change our view of the world. I suspect the majority of people in the church have a pretty good idea of how to view this world. But I do think that a reminder is in order for all of us. You know, one of the things I've learned over the years of these young adults that have gone to Africa and how people's views of the world can change. Um, over the years, it's been interesting to accompany some of these young adults who have never been off this continent, let alone on the African continent. And it's happened every year, and this year was no exception. You know, the example of how one's worldview changes. You know, 10 days in Zambia or Zimbabwe uh, changed the view that these young people had. And they explained it not only in the few minutes that I may have interviewed them, that's on an accord, but more, more importantly in discussions we had. It, it changed their view of the church. 10 days. And God's people. Not, not that dramatically changed, but, but it had a huge impact on it. 
Now, I, I identify because I'll have to say that as I've had the privilege, and I know Mr. Franks would agree with this and others here, as you've had the opportunity to visit people in some of these settings, it changes your view of things in a good way. But these young people in 10 short days, it changed the way and altered the way and had an impact on the way they view the church, God's people, and even the world in God's plan. In so many ways, this phrase has been repeated to me as it was by a number of the young adults that just came back from Africa this year. My life and view of the church and the world are forever changed. You know, I've made such statements to myself in times past after coming back from certain places. And I've only hoped that that would remain with me. Because as human beings, we can also kind of change back. We can forget. We can forget. But it's, it's, it's encouraging to see that we can have our view of the world more sharply focused in the way that God views the world. The scripture shows that the ultimate outcome of this troubled world is remarkable. And with the fall holy days that are yet ahead of us, it's a perfect time, brethren, for us to focus our spiritual view of this world, and to even adjust our response to what we see going on around us and to savor the things and the truths that be of God as we see this world. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, there's a very encouraging statement made about the way that God views his hope for mankind. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, Peter was inspired to write to the church to help them to understand their God in in, in the broadest context. He said, and the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He meant that toward us in the church, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's desire. What a positive. God's desire is for this miracle, and I refer to God's calling and our human response to that through the Spirit of God, a miracle. God's desire for this miracle, mankind's nature changing, to be a process affecting all people, all people will have access to. It seems impossible as you look at the world today to think that that's actually going to be a prospect out there for every human being that's ever drawn the breath of life Brethren, in the privacy of our minds, the way we view the world we live in has a profound effect on the priorities that we develop in our lives. It has a profound effect on the decisions that we make. It has a profound effect on the actions that we engage in. And thus Satan desires to misdirect and distract us from what is truly most important. As we conclude, remind, I want to remind us what God shows us about the time of the end. I want to turn to Daniel 12, if you would. It may seem to be a strange place to end a message like this, but I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 12. We know by the reading of the book of Daniel that when you get to the end of this, this book, clearly there were some things that God was showing Daniel that he didn't totally understand. It must have been uh, fascinating for him to have seen these visions and to have this understanding given to him and not be able to put all the pieces of the puzzle exactly together. And he asked questions of God, as we see here. But God begins this final dialogue referring to the troubled world at the time of the end. Notice Daniel 12, verse 1. Daniel 12, verse 1. And at that time, uh, shall Michael stand up, the great prince who stands for the children of your people. And there shall be a time of distress such as never was since there was a nation to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one that is found written in the book. So God, through Daniel, speaks of an extremely troubled world at the time of the end, a world in tribulation, as other scriptures refer to it. And yet God delivers and takes care of his people. Verse 2, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the expanse. And they that turn the many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And you, Daniel, close the words and seal the book till the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. And then the angel tells Daniel this in verse 7. Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times and half a time. And when the power of the holy people shall have been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. And although I heard, Daniel says, I did not understand. Then then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And this next statement, none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Brethren, God's people will see the world for what it is now and at that time. God wants us to see the world and his plan as he sees it. God's word gives us the context, brethren, to understand and appreciate the world we live in and where it's headed and what the ultimate destiny and opportunity is for mankind. The true causes of its ills and the only solution to these troubled times. Thus, we should have confidence as we live our lives as God's people and as we face the future. And remember... The hymn that we sing so often says that in spite of the world we live in, God will certainly see us through.